Well, good morning, everyone. Today we're going to continue our study of Acts. We're still in chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 19b through verse 31. Luke's account of Saul's conversion from pursuing followers of Christ to realizing that Christ has been pursuing him from persecutor to persecuted seems to be an interruption in this story. At the end of our passage this morning, Paul will disappear from the story until about the end of chapter 11. Those two chapters of absence on the pages of the text equate to about 10 years in time, and the majority of Paul's ministry takes place after that 10 years. So why does Luke tell the story now? Why does Luke tell the story when he does? Add to this the reality that Saul will become Paul and will bring the gospel to Gentiles, yet in chapter 9 he's preaching just to Jews until he departs. So as a preacher of this text, I want to know the answer. If I only tell you the facts of this text, even in the most creative and entertaining of ways, I have wasted your time and mine. I know I'm probably strange in my love for a good lecture, but preachers do not or at least should not, be merely lecturers. So we have to answer this question. What is the intention of Luke through the Holy Spirit? Or maybe better, what's the intention of the Holy Spirit through his servant Luke? And additionally, what does it mean for us today? Remember that we are not first century Jews living under the heavy hand of Rome, nor are most of us polytheistic pagans being confronted for the first time with the story of Jesus, or are we? Remember that Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus, an event largely ignored today, at least in my tradition, but every bit as significant as the incarnation and the resurrection. This glorious history reshaping event is followed by a very curiously detailed account of the replacement of Judas to restore the twelve. In fact, the story gets a bit more space on the front page than the ascension of Jesus does. The point of that account seems to be to make sure that we understand the connection between Jesus and Israel and to understand the significance of the apostles and their experience of Jesus in relating the advancement of God's kingdom to its foundation. The significance of this foundation is lost to many of us today. Christianity, at least in its more popular forms in America, is disconnected from its foundation and from the church's history. The church's tradition, more than her traditions, is often looked upon with disdain and skepticism. And you'll hear this expressed sometimes in statements like this, how Christianity is not a religion but a relationship. Now that could be true, I guess, depending on what you mean by religion and what you mean by relationship. But often this is a way to say that I'm like all for Jesus, but maybe not so much for the church and for its tradition. Another way you'll hear this is something like, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And even very pious statements like, no creed but Christ, and no doctrine but the Bible, 
can indicate, though they don't have to, but they can indicate a rejection of or a distaste for the historical roots of our faith. And one of the primary purposes of Luke's story of Saul in Acts 9 is to connect Saul's experience to the foundation, to the beginning of the story. I'm indebted to an extent to Will Williman and his wonderful commentary on Acts for drawing my attention to this. Now, some of us don't mind connecting with parts of church history, with parts of the tradition, like the 16th century Protestant Reformation, especially Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and the Wesleys uh, a few centuries later. Unfortunately, the New Testament isn't interested in Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, or the Wesleys. The text under our consideration today wants to connect Saul to the Twelve. Now, Saul's conversion experience in some ways really seems to epitomize the values we honor today, in conversion to be sure, but also in the way good citizens live their lives, regardless of religion. He had a personal experience. He had an independent experience. Something occurred between Saul and Jesus, but no one else. It was an individual experience. It was apparently a churchless experience. Now, it would be terribly anachronistic to even talk about denominations regarding the early church at this point, and perhaps a little ahead of things to even talk about the church as, uh, as we envision and experience the church today. But what I mean to say is that no one other than Jesus himself is involved in evangelizing Saul. None of the 12 disciples of Jesus, none of the seven deacons appointed in Jerusalem and then scattered, none of the saints scattered to Damascus have anything to do with Saul coming to pledge his allegiance to King Jesus. So if the story ended there, we would have Saul, a lone ranger for Jesus, free of the confines of tradition. Saul and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, a perfect combination. He can spread the gospel with no, hope, no hoops to jump through, no one to answer to. Or if he wanted, he could move to the mountains and just think about Jesus all day long. But listen to what happens in this story. Again, Acts 9, beginning in the second half of verse 19. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, This man is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and were saying, is this not the man who in Jerusalem was ravaging those who call on his name and who had come to come here to bring them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul became more and more capable and was causing consternation among the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 23. Now after some days had passed, the Jews plotted together to kill him. But Saul learned of their plot against him. They were also watching the city gates day and night so that they could kill him. But his disciples took him at night and led him down through an opening in the wall by lowering him in a basket. Verse 26. 
When he arrived in Jerusalem, he attempted to associate with the disciples, and they were all afraid of him because they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took Saul, brought him to the apostles, and related to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So he was staying with them, associating openly with them in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. He was speaking and debating with Greek-speaking Jews, but they were trying to kill him. When the brothers found out about this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria experienced peace and thus was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, the church increased in numbers. The first theme of this text that I want you to see actually began in the previous section and continues in this one. It is that followers of Jesus must be connected to the community. Saul clearly had a personal, individual, mostly independent experience and encounter with the risen Jesus, but this left him blinded. Notice that he was spiritually mended, but physically maimed until Ananias came. Ananias was Saul's first connection to the community of followers of Jesus in Damascus. Ananias is obedient to obey the vision he has. He heals Saul's vision and apparently baptizes him. Now in the second half of verse 19 through verse 26, we see that Paul is connected with the larger Christian community in Damascus. He was with the disciples in Damascus, and associating with them, he began proclaiming Jesus, and they knew whom he was. Verse 22 tells us that Saul became more and more capable in his preaching, and I can't help but think that his association and connection with the community, with the Christ community in Damascus, helped to increase his strength and this ability to allow him to preach. It was these disciples who helped save Saul's life from the Jews who heard his teaching in the synagogues and were plotting to kill him. Saul learns of this plot, and his fellow disciples save him by lowering him through an opening in the city wall. The community strengthened him, and the community saved him literally. Now, in Galatians 1, Paul says some things that might seem to sound like he's asserting his independence, even from other followers of Jesus, even from the Twelve in Jerusalem. But his point isn't that he had this ex personal experience with Jesus, and then it was just him and Jesus, and he wasn't accountable to anyone else. He's clear in Galatians 1, 11 to 12, that the gospel he preached did not have a human origin. That's his point in Galatians 1. He and other followers of Jesus didn't get together and draft a gospel. Paul received it by a revelation from Jesus himself. So while his message didn't originate from other men, his association and connection with the Christian community, beginning three days after his Damascus Road experience, serves to support him, to save him to carry out his mission. The second theme of this text is related to the first, but goes a step at least beyond. Again, 
Paul is almost immediately connected with the community of Jesus' followers. This supports him, strengthens him, and saves him from mission, but something is missing. Now, it's true that Luke has been moving us as we read his account beyond Jerusalem and beyond the Twelve. Seven deacons are given some degree of authority from the twelve. Two of these seven, we are told, proclaim the gospel. Stephen does it in Jerusalem, and he's executed in Saul's presence and with Saul's approval. Philip is among those scattered by Saul's persecution after Stephen's stoning, and he proclaims the gospel in Samaria and then to the Ethiopian queen's treasurer. The authority is extending beyond the twelve, and the kingdom is spreading beyond Jerusalem. It's spreading to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. However, the connection of all of this to Jesus and to his disciples is never excised from the story. Philip and Stephen are directly appointed by the twelve, and we can be sure that the gospel they preached has its roots firmly planted in the teachings of Jesus as remembered by those closest to him. Now Saul has his experience. He realizes that Jesus is alive and well and that Jesus has connected himself so intimately and so organically to his followers that to persecute them is to persecute him. Saul's allegiance and thus his zeal is redirected. Others, including Ananias, are rightly cautious, even skeptical of the story of Saul's conversion. But Saul connects with the community of followers of Jesus in Damascus, and all is well, at least as the authenticity of Saul's conversion goes. But then Luke tells us that Saul returns to Jerusalem briefly and then departs to Tarsus because some Greek-speaking Jews were trying to kill him. And as I said, he won't return for 10 years. Now, you must know that Luke doesn't give us many details of Saul's timeline here, and it's a little tricky to put together. Paul tells us in Galatians some of these details, especially as they regard uh, Acts 9. It seems to go this way. At some point during his time in Damascus, Saul leaves for Arabia for three years and then returns to preach in Damascus. Then he flees Damascus. He spends this brief time in Jerusalem that we read of in Acts 9. But then he leaves. He spends eight years in Tarsus and then two in Antioch before finally returning to Jerusalem, ten years after this brief visit to Jerusalem. So what's the point of this brief time in Jerusalem? Luke's concern seems to be to bring Paul back to Jerusalem quickly. So why? I believe that Luke brings Saul back to Jerusalem at this point to connect Saul, his Damascus Road experience, his preaching and his gospel to Jerusalem and to the Twelve. As Will Willimon puts it, Luke Acts knows no split between tradition or experience. Both are necessary for a full and faithful witness to the risen Christ. The twelve know the facts of Jesus' career, yet still need to experience his present power. Paul had a dramatic experience of Christ's power, yet Luke insists that Paul had to set his experience within the facts of the tradition. The gospel and the kingdom are advancing. 
Now, where is the hub of Christianity today? In the first century, at this point, we would say it's in Jerusalem. But where is it today? Is it in Rome? Is it somewhere in the east? Some might say it's in Dallas. For my friend Brad, some might say, well, they wouldn't say it's in Denver, but maybe Colorado Springs. And I guess it depends on what you mean. But what Luke wants us to know is that the kingdom is built, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.20, the kingdom is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, with Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The gospel itself is the story of Israel fulfilled in the story of Jesus. We certainly experience and encounter Jesus, and experience and encounter him we must, but we do so 2,000 years and thousands of miles removed from Jerusalem, from the Twelve. Yet, as the same Spirit connects us to each other, in spite of our differences and diversity and even geography, the Spirit also connects us to the Twelve. So understand that when you proclaim the good news as Saul did, and as Stephen did, and as Philip did, and as Peter and John and the others did, the good news that Jesus is the king, you're doing so in concert with these men and women. And know also that when you suffer for doing so, that you're not the first. As put off as we might be by the idea of tradition, we must understand that tradition, rightly understood, connects all of the followers of Jesus Christ through both time and space. Maybe some of you have bad memories regarding the recitation of things like the Apostles' Creed at church. Maybe you associate a cold and lifeless church experience with churches who recite it regularly. Yet it has been proclaimed for almost 2,000 years by gathering of loyal followers of Jesus in numerous traditions all over the world. Several creeds are even older. Some of them we even find in the New Testament, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7 or so, are three creeds in the New Testament itself three statements of the tradition. They are ancient statements about who Jesus is and about what he did that served to form this tradition to which we are connected. So Saul enters Jerusalem. Barnabas has to intercede on his behalf to authenticate him before the disciples. Now, if you remember, Barnabas was an example of one who sold his property to share it with others who had need. Um, Luke contrasted him with another couple who sold property and gave uh, not quite all of the proceeds to help those in need, and something pretty tragic happened to Ananias and Sapphira. So we've seen Barnabas before. 
Barnabas has to intercede on Saul's behalf to authenticate him before the disciples. They were afraid because they know who Saul was. They know what he had done. They had witnessed it in person. Barnabas' account of Saul's encounter with Jesus and subsequent boldness in proclaiming Jesus as Messiah seems to allay their fears. Saul is now, even if only briefly, connected to the Twelve. His experience is now connected to the foundation. It's connected to the tradition. And the story moves on. Remember, Saul will be gone for two chapters in about ten years before he returns. Our text this morning ends with verse 31, another one of Luke's summary statements telling us about the growth of the church. He begins by telling us that the church experienced peace and was strengthened. Now, I'm not sure what Luke means by peace. It could be, and this seems likely, that he means a social or a political peace, that the persecution has lessened for a time, perhaps because of Saul's conversion or for some other reason. It was also the case that persecution was not consistently extreme in the first decades of the church's history. Roman leadership sometimes overlooked the church because other things were going on. Some emperors just weren't as bloodthirsty as others. And I think that's probably what's going on here. However, I also wonder if it couldn't be said that the church experienced peace even in the midst of persecution. Now, I noticed in another one of Luke's summary statements back in chapter 2 that he doesn't hesitate to tell us that the church experienced the favor of the people. But he doesn't say that here. He simply says the church experienced peace and was strengthened. And even if that's not what's going on here, even if he has primarily uh, in mind a kind of political or social peace that the church is experiencing, I would contend that the church can and must experience peace regardless of its standing in society, regardless of its position before political leaders. You see, if we encounter Jesus, if we connect to the community of Jesus' followers, and if we experience our connection with the foundation of the church, along with Jesus, the cornerstone, then we can experience this kind of peace even in the face of persecution. We will be strengthened. We will be strengthened because we will know that our experience corresponds to a reality, that our, our encounter with Jesus is not disembodied, but rather it's connected to history, to an empty tomb, to a risen, resurrected Jesus. This is how we grow. This is how we mature. This is how the church serves to advance God's kingdom. Connect, encounter, and experience the risen Christ. He is pursuing you, and he is not far away. Then connect with the community of fellow followers of Jesus so that you can be supported and encouraged. And finally, connect with the roots of our faith. Don't let the abuse of tradition prevent the blessing that connecting with it will bring. Now let me close with another quote here by Will Williman. 
He says this, Without the experience, the facts can be cold and dead. Without the test of tradition, our spiritual experiences can become radically subjective, severed from the community. Flights of mere fancy. Let not our experience with Jesus, our encounter with him, be a flight of mere fancy. Connect to Jesus. Connect to the community. Connect to the foundation, to the tradition. Amen.